Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome back to Once a DJ. I'm here with DJ Step One, aka Paul Tazuli. In addition to DJing, we're going to be discussing his first generation music blog, only built for Zshare Links and his book, Who Say Reload, which covers the stories of classic jungle tunes and recently had an accompanying record series released. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. It's, it's, um, I'm looking forward to having a chat on this one because we've not really gone down the jungle route or done anything in that sort of, sort of world on the podcast yet. So I, I do really want this not to just be the low-hanging fruit for me that's hip-hop and funk DJs, um, <laughs> battle DJs. I, I want to cover as broad a range as possible. And I think the more that I do with that, the more that I will learn and the more learning opportunities it gives for everyone who's listening as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's go from the top then. How did you get into DJing? Um, I was really young when I kind of discovered what it was. Go, I got into music and in like 88, like late 87, but I was only about 10. Um, but I got a tape with my first Walkman, which was hit seven, which was kind of like a now album, just a chart compilation. Um, and that had the cold cover remix of paid in full by Eric B and Rakim, which was, I mean, I did, I had no idea what it was at the time. Obviously I'll just got this chart compilation, but you know, it's obviously quite a groundbreaking record, a lot of, um, yeah. like kind of carb samples and things. And also it's obviously got Rakim on it. So it's amazing. Um, so I was kind of drawn to that, um, it was on the second side of the first tape and they kind of grouped together a lot of the dancier soul funk stuff. So it was, apart from that, I had um, Donna Summer, Alexander O'Neill, Chic, Prince, all that kind of thing. Um, but that was the only hip-hop tune on that side. But at the time, there was a lot of hip-hop in the charts and a lot of early house. So if you pop on top of the pops, you might see like um, De La Soul, salt and pepper Public Enemy, Rebel MC, all this kind of like slightly commercial hip-hop, but also quite credible at the same time you know it was still early days of hip-hop so there wasn't that big divide between mainstream and, and underground like there, there would be later on you used to get a lot of like like brixton remixes and like london remixes on things like that didn't you yeah there'd be a lot of uk only remixes um which you know mixed results sometimes some of them <laughs> levels. but some sometimes it'd be like if you heard that version first and especially if you're quite young you'd be like i like that version and i remember getting the Derek b and rakim album and none of the remixes were on it you know, there was an I Know You Got Soul one, which Norman Cook did, um, which used I Want You Back by the Jackson 5, and that wasn't on there. Yeah. And I was like, I don't like this other version. You know, it takes a while to kind of understand what's going on and, and how everything works, I guess. He did some of the, the more tasteful remixes, didn't he? Yeah, although, you know, since I've 
been online, you kind of start to discover that the the older guys and the purists hated all that kind of what they considered to be watered down. You know, they wanted the the originals. Right. Um, whereas, you know, I've kind of like I say, it's it's what you hear first a lot of the time is the version you you like the most. Yeah. Um. So there was that. So just a lot of stuff on top of the pops. Obviously, not a lot of there was no MTV, so you're kind of limited as to what music you see on TV. Um, I found a radio show on Radio 1 by um, hosted by a guy called Jeff Young, who was like the, before Pete Song, he kind of like did their dance show. And um, he was playing a fair bit of hip hop. And then he, he had a, an hour after his show was set aside. It was called National Fresh um, or the Big Beat Show. I kind of forget how it worked. But um, yeah, he'd play a lot of that. So that was the first place I had Public Enemy. He had Ice-T being interviewed on there. It's the first place I had Ice-T. Um, and he'd also play all the Acid House stuff that was coming out, just anything that was kind of new and, you know, dancey, I guess. Um, but it was on late. I'd have to get my mum and dad to, like, tape it for me so I could listen <laughs> to it in the morning. Um, so you had to kind of put in quite a lot of effort, really. But as I say, there was stuff available in the mainstream. You just had to kind of um, find your way a bit. And I was an only child. I didn't have, like, a an older brother or anything that could, you know, yeah. show you what was what. Um, yeah, you start finding radio shows. Then Hip Hop Connection came out. Um, you start finding out a bit more about, you know, other acts that maybe like weren't in the charts and just picking up things in record shops that looked interesting. Um, you know, usual thing. What, were you, did you grow up in London? No, no. I mean, I was grew up in Surrey, just outside right. London. So, um, but in an area where there was literally no kind of scene of any sort. I mean, especially when, when you're that young, you know, like before you yeah. your teens. So, but there was, you know, a few kids at school start listening to it and you swap tapes and, usual thing really um but i think by about by the early 90s i'd kind of found westwood and max and dave on kiss and then you start finding the the proper stuff um gust i kind of stopped listening to house music after a bit i'd say by like 91 i kind of wasn't really interested in the dancey stuff for a bit but at that age you still kind of know what's in the charts you know everybody just knows what's out so you kind of hear certain things you like all my friends were listening to like all the early hardcore rave stuff like the prodigy and that kind of thing so i was kind of familiar with that still yeah, just thinking about that with um, with the mentioning of like the UK remixes, house, hip house, crossover. Yeah. Do you think that that period around the late 80s in England, it, it kind of all came together and exploded in different directions? There was the big yeah, musical be... crossover. And do you think it's fair to kind of compare that in a way, maybe not the quite the level of impact, but with like New York in 77, how you had sort of, yeah, this like probably. melting pot yeah and then it kind of went off into the three different into the disco the punk and the house i suppose yeah. over here we we went into the baggy which went into the indie and we went into the dance music yeah that's true yeah you, you, you do get these sort of periods where everything kind of meets even about i don't know 10 15 years ago there was a lot of djs playing what ended up being known as bass music and you do like dubstep drum and bass techno you know kind of all yeah all messed up for a while um I think that period in the late 80s, if you listen to like DJ sets, you'll hear, especially like, oh, pirate radio tapes are always a good point of reference, I think, because um, the DJs will maybe be a bit more adventurous sometimes, being on radio rather than trying to fill a dance floor, you know, but you'd hear the up-tempo hip-hop like Big Daddy Kane or Sugar Bear Don't Scandalize Mine, and then you'd hear some house stuff, which wasn't far off the same sort of tempo, um, and they were kind of mixing it all up, and then obviously the hip-house was already a mix of the two. And then, I guess from that, you know, styles start to split a bit and people find their their niche, you know? Yeah. 
So in terms of sort of collecting records and things, going from that early musical interest, at what point did you get decks or get on decks? Man, that took ages because I guess I couldn't kind of justify to my parents why I needed two of them. We had like a record player, <laughs> I had a little stereo, you know, and I can see, you know, looking back, it's it's quite a big spend for a, for a young kid of something that they might grow out of in six months. So I didn't get my decks till 95, um, my first summer job when I got some belt drives. But I did have a sort of decent little pile of vinyl by the time I got my first set of decks. So, um, yeah, I got some belt drives in 95. And then just over a year later, I managed to, um, to upgrade to the, uh, the techniques that I've got now. Were you just buying hip-hop then, or were you buying all sorts? Buying all sorts, really, because there was a lot of good music around. You know, that I was talking to my wife about this the other night. The, it's easy to kind of um, dismiss it as looking at it with, you know, this was a great time in your youth and all the music was amazing, but there was a lot of good music in the 90s. You know, there was a lot of genres were birthed. Um, things were kind of changing every kind of 18 months. Yeah. Um, so I'd buy like certain house records still if I had something I liked. It was mainly hip hop, a bit of R&B at the time. I'm, I've always been quite keen on secondhand stuff and bargain bins where you can kind of take a punt on something if it looks interesting. So, um, you know, if I can find like a record shop with a box of 12 inches for a quid I'm more than happy you know to yeah. rummage around in that so I'll buy a bit of everything which a lot of people I found wouldn't because they'd kind of think right I'm going to be this type of DJ and I'm only going to buy these records whereas I saw it as well if I just keep buying a bit of everything eventually I'll have enough to do a little set of you know these genres and at the time hip-hop and R&B were sort of quite closely linked you know all the R&B stuff had hip-hop beats and hip-hop remixes um so yeah, a bit of everything really. And I had friends all listening to different things. This was sort of the the plus side of growing up in an area that didn't really have a a scene of any sort. You know, I'd have like friends at college that listened to grunge and Britpop. And then my friends that where I lived on the estate were all listening to rave and hardcore and jungle. Um, I was one of about two or three people still listening to hip hop in 92, 93, I think. But um, yeah, I was sort of exposed to a lot of different stuff, I guess. Were like the rave sort of scenes pretty big then? Because it was a lot of um, parties around the M25, wasn't it? Yeah, I think um, thinking about it, my friends that were into it probably all had older brothers and sisters that maybe would have been going to those sort of things. Yeah. So my best friend, Kevin, he was sort of getting tapes from his sister and then, you know, he gets stuff off Pirate Radio. Um, but yeah, it was the era when people started collecting flyers, buying record bags, you know, the old MA2s with the, the logos on the back. Um, and there was just a lot of compilations. You know, you could go into like Woolworths or WH Smiths at the time and pick up, a, you know, Chaos Theory or Best of Rave or all these sort of strictly underground compilations. So, um, yeah, on the estate where I lived, Hardcore was like the, the big thing. I remember being, you know, everyone was getting like Dreamscape and Fantasia, Helter Skelter, uh, World Dance, all those sort of things. Um, and I wasn't really that into it. It was kind of a bit too hectic and a bit, too different to what I was listening to, which at the time I guess would have been like Dre, Snoop, um, Tribe Called Quest, you know, just whatever hip hop was out. Yeah, so quite laid back sort of stuff. Yeah, it was it was just, you know, not really um I don't know, it was different to eighty nine, I guess, whereas like we were saying, it was a little bit more uh in sync. But um there were certain things I liked. I sort of liked the stuff that maybe had the reggae samples, um, or certain things where I could pick out hip hop samples, you know, just stuff you can identify with a bit more. So did you get into Jungle as it as it evolved, or were you later coming back to it? Yeah, I suppose I kind of got into it around about the time it was blowing up. 
so my friends it was buying the tape packs at the time the raves were still quite mixed so 1991 92 in the hardcore scene all the DJs are kind of playing vaguely similar sort of stuff yeah and then it starts to splinter a bit but the raves are still booking the same DJs even though they're playing very different kind of styles um so my friend might get a pack and he'd sort of have the ones he wanted to and you get six or eight tapes you know because it'd be a recording of the whole night and he'd be like oh you know you might like the hype tape you might like this randall tape and the dj hype tapes especially were like the kind of ones i i really got into so yeah um i think 94 yeah i had like a few tapes off him and i picked up a couple of records that i'd found cheap do you think with the dj hype it's the it's the scratching it was that and he's just, he was just very um I don't, I don't want to say he only played anthems, but I think the records he was playing became anthems partly because he was playing them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So when you when you listen back to him, it sounds like it's a Jungle Classic set, but at the time it was all brand new, you know? Yeah. I suppose because with me, with DJ Psy, because I used to listen to, it was a, it was a few right. years later than that, but I with the hardcore packs and things like that, oh. it was more, I remember always preferring the sort of jungle sets in them and the drum and bass sets. Oh. But DJ Sai was a big one for me because he was doing the scratching, yeah. Yeah, a lot of my friends were into him. And he had a house tape as well with a lot of scratching on it, which was really unusual. You didn't hear house DJ scratch. Oh, nice. Um, which is quite well known. and It's probably online somewhere, but I remember my mates were playing that quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, hype. And then, yeah, I kind of couldn't really tell what was going on a lot of the tapes. You know, it was kind <laughs> of, you didn't always know what these tunes were. There's no track lists. It's quite difficult to find out what was happening. So... Um, yeah, started going to a few shops, but those shops back in them days could be quite intimidating. Some of them, you know, all the records are behind the counter. They've got like three out on the shelf and everything else is behind the counter. So you kind of start to try and figure out what's what. And there was a few like compilation CDs and then eventually obviously it all went mental and General Levy and all that came out and it became a bit more easy to, to access certain things and find out what they were, I guess. Yeah. Was that because at that point I was reading the, um, the General Levy MB section in the book yeah. because it's just a banger, isn't it? <laughs> and um, I, was, I was just having a flick through because I've read a few a few of the chapters yeah. and then I got onto that and it was talking about how that was like the kickoff for really the mainstream adoption of Jungle. Yeah, I mean, that was the first one to kind of hit the charts and get to the point where you'd have just people that listen to chart music buying that song. Um, it's kind of like the the jungle equivalent of rapper's delight i guess it was probably like you know yeah if you, if you hadn't been exposed to it beforehand that was probably the first one you heard that or maybe original nutter but that wasn't quite as that didn't chart quite as high um although it's maybe a slightly more credible tune you know it's a little bit harder yeah i think the other one that that i'm aware of was baby d let me be fantasy i don't know if you'd quite call that jungle but yeah i mean that was a funny one because that came out in 92 but it didn't they re-released it and it charted in 94 that was when it got to number one hmm. so it kind of like it's been this big record and then it tried again so it kind of got a second lease of life and i guess it was kind of grouped in with that a bit it's not the sort of tune you could mix with jungle you know slightly slightly slower it must be like one or what it is 140 maybe um but yeah it was sort of probably appealed to the same sort of audience in terms of people listening to the chart music that maybe liked the more mainstream dance stuff yeah they'd have been buying that general levy prodigy you know, whatever else was uh, was kicking around at the time, I guess. Yeah. So when did you start playing out live and what what was early DJing like for you? <laughs> um, my first time I played out was like really early 97 and I'd started hanging around at this um, 
this record shop in the town where I grew up in Camberley. Um, so a group of us would kind of just go and hang around in there and listen to tunes and, you know, pick up. And somebody came in and said he was putting on under, uh, under 18s event and he wanted my um, friend who was working in the shop to play. And then he sort of suggested a couple of other people and we ended up going and doing that. Um, it was probably a bit of a mess. I don't think we had a monitor. And it was, <laughs> but, you know, it was quite busy. I got paid, which is better than some of the other things that followed, um, I suppose. How old were you at that time then? I'd have been, what was that, 90, so I'd have been like nine, 18, 19. How did you feel about doing an under-18s event then? Did, were, you, were you excited or, or did it feel like, was there any any kind of negative perception for you of doing that? Because when, you, when you, you're aspiring to be a DJ, there's a bit of ego going on. Or with a lot of people, I should say. I don't. I think I was just happy to be playing out because there weren't too many. You know, this is growing up in a town where there's like one club at a time, and it just played like cheese. Right. So <laughs> somebody asked you, "You want a DJ somewhere?" And this, I remember, like the first few years, literally. You know, I was one of these people. Any opportunity you get, yeah, come play that. Want me to do a house party? I'll pack all my stuff up and bring it over. And yeah. So d- did you did you do quite a lot quite quickly from there, or was it just kind of no? Because there just wasn't much going on. Um, and I was still obviously buying a lot of hip hop, which at the time you couldn't go and play in like a, a high street bar or anything. So this is like yeah. late nineties. It still wasn't, you know, we hadn't had um, Neptune's and Nelly and Jarrell and that to make it, you know, where you could just pull up at E Eight's Wine Lodge or something and and play that for a couple of hours. So um, no, it was it was kind of like sporadic. Um, we did a bit of pirate radio around about ninety nine. So the the pirate radio thing was cool. It was like a station. Um, my friend Jack, who had the guy that was managing the record shop, he initially set it up in like 92 or 93, I think. And he decided to dig his transmitter out and we managed to start running it on weekends. Um, which, yeah, you know, it's quite quite exciting at that age to like get on the ads. You know, now it's quite easy to kind of get a radio show online. You know, you can just kind of find one of the several thousand internet stations. But some, yeah, we did that for a bit. Was there a lot of chase from the police with that then? No, none at all. I think it was so unusual for that to happen in that area and we weren't bothering anyone. We mostly got left alone. Although we did find out years later, my friend was chatting to somebody from the DTI and yeah, they did know we were doing it, (laughs) apparently. But we used to move it around each weekend. So we were like quite responsible with it. You know, we weren't like on air swearing and all this kind of thing. We weren't cutting into anybody else's frequency. So yeah, that was uh, quite cool. It was probably about 95% UK garage on there at the time though for the like four or five months it ran yeah. um, you know occasionally I'd like get on and you know maybe two in the morning play some hip hop or whatever but generally it was all garage a little bit of house and sort of like some old school you know people would turn up and play like their old hardcore and that so at your core was it always hip hop that was the first love yeah yeah still yeah that's basically what I mostly listen to now to be honest I'm not one of these people that's um, oh yeah I like a bit of everything I, I basically listen to like 90% of hip-hop when I'm uh, at home or driving around. So it's, um, yeah, that's kind of been the one constant through everything, really. Yeah. So so in terms of DJing out then, we we had a quick chat the other day, didn't we? And we, it, it's, it's quite a big buzzword now, but open format DJing. So kind of a bit of everything, whatever's needed for the situation. Um, as a strong sort of hip-hop head, do you think you ended up going down the open format route just out of necessity in order of that's what you needed to be able to play out? Yeah, I think um, I had to kind of figure out how I could play out and how people would enjoy it because I've always been quite self-conscious when I turn up to play somewhere in that I want people to like it. I've never been able to 
be one of these people that's like, well, I'm just going to turn up and play what I think is good and you know head <laughs> yeah. down. And so I've seen so many people do it. Even now, it is it baffles me. I haven't got that. So I'm, I don't know. It's a mixture of either just really strong self confidence or complete ignorance. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I can't do it. And I, I'd like always try and focus on the people that might not be into what I was playing. And I'm like, right, I need to, you know, just just generally try and be like fairly across the board without playing any shit. It just kind of got a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe a bit limiting after a while. I kind of thought maybe I could have gone down the route of being a bit more forward thinking and trying to push new stuff. But I think you've really got to be in the right place for that sort of music. And there wasn't a lot of places like that where I lived. Yeah, and I think if you're not a promoter, it makes it a lot harder as well. Because I think being a promoter is kind of, it's in your personality, I think. Um, it's not something I've ever enjoyed trying to do or done well. Yeah, I wouldn't fancy it. <laughs> uh, so I think if if you want to be that person that's like, no, nah, I need to be doing this specific thing, you, and you're in an area that not a lot goes on like that, you need to be promoting rather than just kind of going to bars to DJ. Yeah. I mean, if you know if you know people are coming to hear a certain sort of music, that's fine. I think for the most part, you have to be a you know a draw. You have to be like that name on the fly. Where if people go and see Andy C or Giles Peterson or you know one of these sort of DJs, they kind of want to hear new stuff and they want to be like entertained with yeah. what that guy's known for. Whereas if you're playing in the corner of a bar and it's just people coming in from you know all sorts of places they're not looking to be like educated with some obscure like EPMD B-side or something. They just want to hear stuff they recognize. So it was just about getting that balance. And you start to find, you know, as you go on, you think, well, I've played like two, three tunes. They know I can get away with chucking one in that's not as well known, but they might like or that fits in with the theme of stuff I'm playing. Um, and the other thing that had happened, obviously, was off, off, off the back of UK Garage Dine down a bit, that R&B and hip hop thing became the the mainstream thing to play so then you had like credible hip-hop that you could play out in in mainstream bars and clubs so you could get away with playing like a clips tune or something like that yeah. which you just couldn't have done five years previous you know um you know you could play like noriega or something like that whereas you know you couldn't play capone and noriega when that came out <laughs> you've just reminded me of one of one of the first gigs i did when i approached a bar to go and play there i probably took down about i don't know 40 50 records something like that not a huge amount because i didn't have a huge amount at the time and and it was a bar that <laughs> it was a bar that was on like a um like a pub run like a pub mile what's the word i'm looking for pub crawl that's it yeah so i i dj'd at this pub that was on a pub crawl route not thinking about that part of it went down there with a load of funk and hip-hop and it was just the worst selection of records you could have had for that place. It was absolutely terrifying. And I had to play, I think I had one two-pack tune with me. I, I, can't, even, I can't even remember what it was. No. And I had to pay, play it at least three times because like, this is the only thing that anyone here likes. Yeah, it's, it's good it's, times. It's yeah. difficult when, when yeah, you, you don't get the bar right for, for what you've got. Yeah, I mean, the first time I played in um, London, I probably had no idea what to expect but i had thought well i've got a big bag of hip-hop and r&b this will be fine and i'd gone up there with um this was it was from the back of hip-hop connection this guy had like said oh you know looking for djs and i'd sent him a cd and i'd only been djing about a year and a bit um and i turn up at this thing and it was kind of like the sort of place 
specifically. Like North London, little sort of basement of a wine bar. A little bit ghetto, but I was like, okay, we'll go in here. And the DJs were playing like proper, um, you know, dance hall. And then they did like the R&B set. And then and I'd like never been to somewhere like this or heard these sort of DJs. And I didn't really get that there was different types of hip hop for different crowds. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'd turn up with like, I was going to like Mr. Bongo and places like that at the time. So I had all my new hip hop bits, but it was like the sort of thing you'd hear on Stretch and Bobito. It wasn't, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember throwing on like a few things and it was kind of like, uh, don't really know what I'm doing here. And it was, they were sort of still, you know, still a bit of a crowd there. And I played like DJ Cool, let me clear my throat. And that just didn't work at all. You know, that was a bit too rowdy for that sort of crowd. Right. Um, and then I think eventually I pulled out a uh, case, Touch Me, Tease Me. Mm. Um, and I just started it from the top where it comes in. It goes, it's just like a little chord. And when that hit, everybody went, and I was like, ah, okay. I kind of found my little lane now. I can stay on that tip for a bit. But yeah, that was the total eye opener, you know. And they were going from like, I think it ran from like 11 till 6 in the morning, just different DJs coming up. I think it was like three different sort of DJ crews playing through the night um, and just seeing like, you know, they ran like a little 80s soul and boogie set at one point playing like Melissa Morgan and all these like tunes I've never heard before. Um, so yeah, total like different crowd to what I'd get around where I lived. But um, yeah, quite character building them sort of places. <laughs> Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from winterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah, it's weird like I, I would get really nervous about DJing quite often only like I might have booked something a, a month or two beforehand but then it's only on the day of or the evening of I'm just like why am I doing this it's all gonna go wrong <laughs> and then yeah once once you know that you've got people you just get this massive pang of relief it's a pretty nice feeling You're like, all right okay yeah I know which lane I'm in now it, it was one of those things I think when I was first started I was just excited to be doing it so I didn't get too nervous even though I probably wasn't well, I definitely wasn't as good as I would be a few years later. Yeah. And then for the most part, later on, I was kind of playing a lot of the same places. So you know exactly what to expect and you're quite comfortable. But now and again, yeah, you'd get, you know, you'd go like a bit further out and you'd have to turn up somewhere you'd never played before. And then I'd be a bit like, you know, what am I going to start with? You know, where is it going to go? Is it going to be busy? What time? And the, the timing, you know, if you play at a bar all night, you know, 
when it's busy, when it winds down, you know, so you know when to hit the big records. Whereas you go somewhere you've never been before, you haven't got a clue, you know. Yeah. D did you ever think about, um, this is something that I've talked to people about recently is, um, is the kind of, the, the pacing and the kind of up and down of the energy of a dance floor. And yeah. rather than thinking, I've got to keep this lot dancing all night, yeah. thinking you've got to have downtime so that they'll go and get off the dance floor and get a drink because ultimately yeah. where you're getting booked needs to make money. Yeah. Like I, I'd never really thought of it like that until these recent conversations. I'd, I'd heard something about that on, um, you listen to the road podcast, the guys from Vegas. A couple of them. Yeah. So they were talking about how um, some DJs in Vegas had had experiences of like doing, I think, what they called like a turnover, where they, because mm. the club would be open like from, you know, 10 till 8 in the morning, and they'd kind of like clear it out. So if there was a queue outside, the next lot of people could come in and you'd literally be like, you know, kind of doing the starting from scratch again every three hours because people will come and go through the long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the way things ebb and flow through a night is quite a. Uh, that's definitely an acquired skill. You know, the more you do it, the more you get used to it. But um, it's, I don't know. I guess you can never like guarantee how it's going to work, but the more you play somewhere, you start to get a rough idea of, um, you know, when you can start dropping the big records and that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you start doing more in London then? Yeah, never like regularly, but yeah, definitely played, you know, certain places quite a bit over the over the years. I'm trying to think what I, what I did. I did like Carnival once. Um and yeah, a few few things around that way. Um, I tended to like playing London a bit more because you'd get a, I don't know, I felt like you could get away with more. Yeah. Um, you know, the crowds are a little bit more open. You could get away with like maybe throwing on a few jungle records or some slightly less well-known hip hop. And you know, I used to like playing student towns because student towns, you can just play like whatever you want pretty much. You, mm. you know, they'll, um, they'll go for it. But um, you can definitely get away with playing hip hop and drum and bass more in a student town. If you're in the right place, you know. Are you, yeah. Are you talking student towns like Bristol and Nottingham? Yeah, those sort of places. Like, I live not too far from Reading. Um, you get to Reading, you're like uh, Brighton, you know, any anywhere with like a sort of decent student crowd. Um, we go to like yeah. uh, Swansea, you know, places like that. I, don't, I never DJed in Swansea, but you could tell just going out, there'd be certain bars that cater more to the students. And, yeah. um, you know, you can tell when you walk in <laughs> what sort of um, music you might be able to get away with playing in there. But, uh, yeah. Those sort of places are a little bit more relaxed and, you know. Yeah, it, it must be nice knowing that you've got that versatility in you that you can go and, and not overly worry about the type of place that you're being booked because you've got so many different kind of weapons in your arsenal, if you like. Yeah. I think the only regret is that Serato wasn't really around as much back then. Yeah. <laughs> For a lot of the time I was doing it. So, you know, but often I'd be, I wouldn't be doing it on my own, you know, like me and a friend of mine would sort of do it together so you could, kind of turn up with a bag and a box each that should do you for like four hours um and we were quite in sync with what each other were going to do you know kind of found a, a common ground i didn't really use serato too much because i kind of stopped playing out i think i got serato in like 2008 um and i did find it was a bit of hassle because a lot of places might not have turntables set up they had cdjs yeah so you say you stopped playing out what brought that on um i think mainly it was like two people I was playing for that were putting on light events stopped. A couple of venues closed. It was kind of a mix of everything. Some of the places I had played out, I noticed were leaning more towards booking like reality TV people to do DJ sets and that sort of nonsense. And Was that late 2000s then, mid to late? Yeah, that was probably like, 
I, I was kind of still doing stuff, but it was more like going along with my friends and jumping on for a bit. You know, if they needed a break and just sort of playing whatever they bought with them. Yeah, but like Danny Dyer or Keith from The Office or something. That, yeah, and you just think this is just bollocks and they're getting like three, four hundred quid and you're getting, you know, 50 quid or something. It's Yeah. wasn't really my thing. And also I just started to notice that I wasn't as into the um, the new stuff that maybe you play out. So I was probably buying like, well, keeping my own like R&B up until about 2004, five. And then I remember going into HMV and the R&B section was like Pussycat Dolls, Rihanna and something else. And I was like, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> this isn't for me. Yeah. Because it kind of moved quite far away from the hip hop side of it, you know, it wasn't as, um, and that whole horrible era of like that sort of EDM, R&B. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was one era, probably mid to late 2000s, where I think it was quite a no-no in a lot of places to play R&B, wasn't it? Yeah, it kind of really died off for a bit. I mean, I'd kind of stopped paying attention, but it, those all those kind of EDM things with R&B vocalists on, I just can't stand. Um, and I, my main hate that I just will never really, um, this absolute anything with like auto tune on it, right, just makes my skin crawl. So I, you know, when that was like the big thing, I was like, no, I can't deal with this. I don't want to be anywhere near it. it just puts me in a bad mood. Um, so yeah, I just kind of stopped. Um, stopped listening to a lot of it really i think also i'd been working in um a virgin megastore for about five years and you kind of you just end up in the loop of everything that's out and then once i stopped working there around about 2005 i didn't need to worry about what was in the charts anymore um so it was a bit there was a bit of everything and just also getting a bit older and the crowd getting younger you know there's like more of a mm. more of a uh, a gap between the people you're playing to um and the sort of you start noticing that certain classics that used to go down really well, they just don't know them. <laughs> no, it's, it's not they don't like them; that they just don't have that effect because they just have no idea what that song is. So, yeah, it was, it was a bit of everything, and I didn't want to be doing it just for the sake of it. You know, sort of something I did for fun more than anything. So, there was no reason to go out if it wasn't enjoyable. You know. Yeah, I, I think you're the first person we've had on that's had quite a conscious few sort of touch points around what brought them to decide to stop yeah um yes it's nice to it's nice to explore those so in parallel with this so you were working at the virgin megastore was that was that a conscious thing because of the dj and was it like great i can get some discounts i can get first dibs on a load of records that type of thing yeah i mean i suppose at the time i wasn't sort of really i never really kind of knew what i wanted to do for a job and i was just kind of been doing like a bit of retail you know then i'd kind of had an office job and it didn't work out and yeah, there was a job at this Virgin place that had opened in Camberley. So um, I applied for that and got it. And I think one of the things I mentioned in the interview was that um, I think they'd asked me for like, you know, how would you improve the store? And there was no specialist record shop in town at the time. Um, and I said, oh, you should start stocking vinyl. So a few weeks after I started there, the manager's like, right, we're going to start a little vinyl section. Can you look after it? You know, So I kind of got like a little budget each week and a few distributors to talk to. And, oh, um, nice. Yeah, it was basically like my own little record shop in the corner of the store because most of the the stores are kind of graded by size and the big ones stock everything. The middle ones have most things and the smaller ones have just your kind of main titles. Yeah. Um, so shops like that generally didn't have a vinyl section at all, but we started building it up, started getting quite big. And obviously I knew a lot of the people in the area. I knew Garage was big. I knew a certain amount of people that buy some drum and bass um, and built it up, you know, really well. So, um, yeah, we were making a, 
you know, a kind of significant amount of the, the takings each week could be from that little section. Um, and obviously, yeah, you know, discounts and promos and that kind of thing start to to follow. So, um, yeah, when you're in like, you know, I was like 22, 23, 24 doing that, it's, it's quite a nice little job to have. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of helped. And you get to meet a lot of other people doing it, you know, I probably got you know maybe a few extra bookings off um off just working in that little shop really even though it wasn't like a specialist yeah you know it's not like I'm working in like black market or anything but um <laughs> yeah it was good man enjoyed it um but retail's got that kind of ceiling where you know the money's crap you got to work every weekend it's you can't really do it once you hit adulthood properly you know yeah so and, what did you move into from there full time job wise then. Um, again, bounced around temping office jobs a bit and then eventually, uh, got a temp job in a, a mortgage lender, which is where I've ended up. So I think I started my first mortgage job was like 2000 and end of 2005 temping. And now I'm still not at the same company, but I'm still in the same industry. So, you know, which, um, you know, it's okay. <laughs> I can't, it's Monday to Friday. It's decent hours. The money's all right. I can't learn too much. Yeah, that's it. If, if it ticks enough of the boxes for you and you and you understand it's not going to tick every box, then that's quite an important thing, I think. Because sometimes with a job you think, oh, yeah, but it's not got this about it, but you're forgetting all the good things it does have. Yeah, there's that. I mean, while I was working at Virgin, I was thinking, right, you know, I could be, because I was speaking to a lot of distributors while I was doing the buying, I was like, I, I think I you know, might like to do that. And I had a job at a head office for a bit um, working with the buying team. And I had quite a good head for picking out what might sell, you know, in terms of like new releases and things. Um, and then gradually the internet starts to impact on everything a bit more. So a lot of record companies shut down like places that applied at, distributors start closing, shops start closing. So yeah, it all kind of coincided with it being a good time to, to get out really, you know? Um, yeah. So speaking of the internet, that's a nice little segue. <laughs> um, so you had a pretty successful blog, didn't you, in in what I would say is the first generation of blogs. And, and it's a time that I absolutely loved in terms of musical discovery because of sites like RapidShare and ZShare, all these yeah. kind of file hosting websites. There was, there was a, quite a few blogs. There was yours and a load of other ones. And I probably gravitated more towards the jazz ones, oh, right. jazz and funk ones. Yeah. Um, but you had only built for ZShare links, which I think is an amazing name. Um, yeah, I came up with a name before I had an idea of what to do with a blog. Really. I thought, <laughs> I need to do something with that title now. So yeah, that was the start from there. Sometimes um, you just need that idea. And yeah. It just, the rest of it looks after itself. Well, yeah, I mean, the title popped up really. It was more, you know, it was, it was that sort of era where the blog, you know, the blogs were updating with new music every day and there was like Narite and you heard that new and all these sort of sites. And, you know, I was, I was living with a friend of mine at the time who was also into hip hop and you'd like get him from work and start checking what was out you know and you could literally come home get a new mixtape a couple of new freestyles and that was like throughout the week you'd pick up quite a lot of good new music um and i think i just had the idea of what if those sites were around you know 10 15 years ago um yeah you'd be coming home and seeing oh there's like bill mags coming out tracks leaked to filmatic or you know there's a new snoop freestyle or all these sort of things so um i had a box under my bed with all these tapes in that I hadn't touched for ages um, and I kind of needed to make a bit of space really you know you start accumulating more and more junk and need to like so uh, not have too much clutter so um, as I was going through them I thought right you know there's a lot of stuff on these tapes that hasn't been online and a lot of people probably haven't heard especially if you're outside the UK you know it's like 
UK radio. Um, so I kind of figured out how I could convert it onto MP3 and started uploading a few bits. Um, I think the first thing I put up was maybe snooping a dog pound on Westwood. Um, there was a freestyle when he came over in 94 and there was a Jam Master J DJ set, like an old school hip hop weekend on Radio 1. So I had some things like that. Um, and then just started picking out freestyles and things. And I was just kind of doing like highlights from the tapes at first because I don't know, I guess SoundCloud and Mixcloud weren't around, I don't think. So it was easier yeah. just to do small files every day. Um, but it started getting quite popular. I was kind of just posting links on a few message boards and things. And um, yeah, people were, were quite into it. But it was stuff that hadn't been shared. I didn't want to be one of the sites that just kind of regurgitated content from another yeah. site and put it up there thought that's not really worth my time but some um, I, th I think at that time because you still had to kind of somewhat um discover it and somewhat yeah. find your way to act find the right sites for the right stuff i think although it was digital so you know it's kind of it, it's di e easily distributed there was still something special in that journey you know like when you got the tape packs and you got the tape handed down it's been copied by yeah, so and yeah. so and you know mm. it's got 15 dubbins worth of tape hiss on it but it's still got on what you want and it's still really yeah. sought after it was it was still a really nice time i think for for that sort of musical discovery yeah you definitely had to know where to look um and not too many people were uploading full tapes at that point for for one reason or another um yeah. i started kind of doing a few I think it was probably just the file size, you know, maybe put me off doing it, I don't know. But um, yeah, there was, I'd start pulling out some mixtapes I had um, that I'd got from back in the day and uh, tapes of old rap radio, that kind of thing. And then what I did find would help was I could then post my mixes and I had a little audience that were there to, mm. to listen to what I was doing as well. Um, and at the time, you know, this was, I mean, I started the blog in March 2009 and I think I'd put a couple of mixes up before that. But, you know, even at the time, people were quite happy to get a full mix for free yeah. online. You know, something you could burn to CD and, and listen to. Whereas, obviously, now it got to a point people started taking it all a bit for granted because there was just so much out there and YouTube and Mixcloud and SoundCloud and you've got so much stuff to listen to that um, people would be like, all oh, right, yeah, another, <laughs> another thing's been uploaded, you know, and they'll go give it a quick glance and move on. Yeah, you you, dr you do drown, I think, now in content. But yeah. it, it's interesting that you say about putting your, your own mixes on there because one of the first things you learn if you ever study marketing is like the 80-20 rule. Right. So it's kind of having that altruism and doing kind of making 80% of what you do not about you and your, your product or service. So you probably kind of just naturally did that. Yeah. So then, like you say, you know, you've got this, you've got this primed audience ready yeah. who believe in you and support you yes. as well. So was that the first thing that you did where you would kind of class yourself as being a music historian? Um, yeah, I guess so. It was certainly a, yeah, it was just a, to me it was kind of an extension of what I'd always liked doing, which was making people tapes and sharing music and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, look at this. And it, it kind of got to a point later on where I think people were maybe flexing a bit and like, oh, I've got this, so I'm not going to upload it, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's just like, look at all this cool stuff. Let's put it out there so everybody can hear it. And there's people that weren't old enough for, you know, if it was um, something from Capital or Kiss, you had to be not only in the UK, but in London to have heard it. And you'd have had to have been listening at a certain time and recording it. So it 
becomes more and more niche as you sort of go further down the line. Um, yeah. And it's funny, as I sort of went, went on, people would start sending me tapes, and every now and again, there'd be certain shows that it seemed everybody had recorded, um, even ones that didn't have anything particularly noteworthy on it, but I swear I got sent the same Westwood show from March 96 about five times. <laughs> and there was no guest on it or anything. It was literally just tunes, yeah. but it seemed like everybody had been at home recording that night. Um, so, yeah, I kind of worked my way through the box I had eventually um, and then reached out to a few other people, um, DJ MK, who I'd bought a lot of tapes off back in the day. Mm. Um, so I knew he'd still have some, so he sort of gave me a few. Um Tobes, who used to do Spine Magazine, which was another site. He had a lot of tapes. Yeah, um, he's a good mate of DJ Yoda as well, so he put me in yeah. touch with Yoda, um, who also, you know, let me take a few from his collection. So, yeah, I kind of was reaching out to a lot of people, and there was a few other sites doing it at the same time, like Random Rap Radio. Um, so I ended up meeting up with Craig and kind of trading a few things. Um, and there was a, quite a good little online community, you know. Um, the only thing that was always a bit annoying was that everybody had this same little box that I had somewhere in their house or at their parents' house and you'd get so yeah. many like, oh yeah, I've got all these tapes, I'll, I'll I'll rip them, I'll sort you out and you just never hear from them again. It was maybe <laughs> like one in one in 50. It'd be like, oh yeah, I'll definitely have to do that. And there were sort of periods where people would start their own blog and start posting things, but a lot of them wouldn't last very long because um, it's kind yeah. of time consuming or you know they just maybe don't get the, the response they wanted from doing it. Um, so in that early blog era, there was a few, you know, blogs started, they do like six posts and then it vanishes again, or you'd get DJs like Stretch Armstrong, who'd maybe rip a few tapes and then wouldn't post anything for four years. Um, and that happened again in lockdown. Once everybody was at home, you know, <laughs> DJ started like, oh, you know, let's rip some tapes and put them out. And then as soon as I could go back outside again, it just stops. And you think there's still all these boxes of tapes that we haven't heard. Um, we need to hear them, but you know, you kind of have to. You can't obsess over it too much or it'll drive you mad. No, that's it. Yeah. So from the point that you closed the blog, we we then kind of like, right, what can I do next? Or, or did you have a bit of time and all of a sudden just kind of think it'd be really cool to do this book? Yeah, I, I kind of didn't really consciously stop the blog. I just ran out of stuff to post. Right. Um, it got to a point where I didn't have any tapes left. Um and I'd kind of like put the odd thing up here and there, but I was like, I don't want to kind of just start putting stuff up for the sake of it. And also I'd like moved in with my now wife at the time. So that kind of starts yeah. to restrict the amount of time I could spend <laughs> picking around converting old tapes. Um, so yeah, I think 2017, I had the idea for the book, but I'd always wanted to write something. And I've done like a few interviews on the blog over the years. Um, I'd had DJ 7L from... Southface, uh, Big Ted, Chubby Kids, uh, Jay Love, Kaiser. I've done like about five or six interviews on the blog, um, which I quite enjoyed doing. So I hadn't really been up, able to come up with a, a concept for a book that I thought was feasible. And then one night it kind of popped into my head. I went through a phase, as I still do now and again, of not being able to sleep properly. And about two in the morning, I thought, book about jungle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and started kind of putting the feelers out for... Who I might be able to talk to and how I'd be able to do it. So yeah, it was, it was probably like a bit of a moment where I'd, I wasn't really playing out anywhere um, and I'd kind of thought I was not really something I want to do at the moment. Um, and yeah, probably just a case of wanting to 
still be involved somehow, but in a, I don't know, maybe like a different way to what I've done already. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from wunterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code WONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah, and I think Jungle's got such an interesting story to tell, hasn't it? You know, we touched upon the kind of the coming together of everything at once in that sort of late 80s period and then how it fell out in those different directions, you know, the house, the breakbeat hardcore, um, the hip house, the hip hop. And, you know, it's such an interesting time. And I think what you maybe get now with with music, like I'm quite keen to do something, to do a podcast about UK hip hop because I think that's another story that just doesn't really get told. And, and I think in the wake of how massive grime has gotten, yeah, a lot of stuff just gets forgotten about now because that's so big. But I think things like Jungle in particular, Garage um, and UK Hip Hop all have quite a lot to contribute to that. And, and they're all quite easily forgotten, the stories and, and the movements. So I think it's something great to get into. How did you find the early days of reaching out to people was was it quite difficult to convince them to come on board or were people really happy to do it not really i mean i did like a the initial concept was just to like cover the big tunes like the big rave tunes so kind of like 93 to 96 ish yeah um and it was quite a small scene so the people i had to talk to was sort of a given for the most part um there was only kind of a certain amount of established names in that period you know it was very UK yeah. based most of it was London um, so I think I was just sort of finding people on social media or prefer- social media is kind of like my last resort because I, I sort of envisage these people's inboxes just get clogged up with all sorts of yeah. SoundCloud links or whatever and spam so I was kind of more searching for like email addresses and, and more sort of uh, professional ways of contacting them and I think I just did pick like three or four at random um, and a couple of people came back to me. So the first one I did was DJ Rap and then I did like Mampy Swift who are probably two of the bigger names in the book to be honest. Um, so yeah. once you kind of speak to them and I'd like explain to Swift in particular, I had a chat with him about what I was doing and he was quite encouraging about it. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, once you sort of see these established names, are like, yeah, this is 
a good idea. It hasn't been done before. Um, you know, good luck with it, this and the other. Yeah, it gives you a bit more motivation to to crack on with it. Um, and some of the, some of the artists were, you know, they're not active necessarily anymore. They're a little bit harder to find. Um, but most of the people I approach were like, you know, up for doing it. Some of the bigger names, obviously, a little bit harder to pin down. Although I have found big names will have a manager or a PA that will organise these things for them, or at least yeah. you know, like a somebody that runs their label for them that will sort of manage their diary. They're almost a little bit easier to to get hold of because of that. Whereas if you're kind of trying to get hold of somebody that does everything themselves or that yeah. maybe has a day job as well as their production and DJ, it's a bit harder to to um, to get a definite day and time out of them. Um, but it was, you know, very much like a learning curve. I'd never done anything like that before. So it was just a case of kind of wanting to document a scene that hadn't been documented very well. Um, at the time, nobody really wrote about it. If you look at the dance music magazines from that side, they're very house and techno and trance focused. Jungle wasn't really taken too seriously, I don't think. Um, apart yeah. from a handful of people like Goldie and Ronnie Size and Bookham, you wouldn't kind of get a feature on Mickey Finn or Ray Keefe or anything like that. Um, and, you know, the, the records were like selling a lot, but they weren't um, they weren't selling through like HMVs and Virgins. They were selling in like independent shops, so they weren't necessarily yeah. charting that kind of thing. So there wasn't really a lot of information out there. There'd been two books, um, All Crews and State of Base, but they'd been written at the time in the 90s, you know, rather than kind of looking back on the impact everything had had since. So, um, yeah, I think the fact it hadn't been done before was like people thought, yeah, this is a, a good idea, you know, it's, it's quite unique. And again, same as a blog, I guess, not wanting to kind of like regurgitate content or anything, just sort of create something original that's um, fill a bit of a, a gap in the market, I guess. And so how did you come across Eddie, who did the photography in the book? Um, so after I'd done a few interviews, I started realizing I was going to need some some images to, to accompany it rather than just having big blocks of text. Um, and again, it being when it was pre-camera phones and whatever, there's not a lot of photos online. You know, generally at Raves, you didn't get a lot of photos anyway. It's not a, an ideal environment and people are doing certain things that they don't want pictures being taken of and that sort of thing. So... Um, I had a look online and um, there was a couple of people's names seemed to be like the main, uh, you know, the people that have been doing it the most. Um, but Eddie's name kept popping up and I found him on Twitter. Um, and when I'd searched him, I also noticed he'd done all the photos of Wu and he'd done like Biggie and Aaliyah and all these people. And I sort of recognised, you know, and even he'd done a few covers for Raucous. I think he did like the Black Star Definition, like things I had in my right. on my shelf. You know, I didn't sort of realise it was him at the time. Um, so I found him on Twitter and he phoned me up about half an hour later after I messaged him, um, said he'd been kind of looking for something to do with this archive of, of photos he'd had. Um, so he'd been taking photos for Goldie at the Metalheads nights. Um, but he'd also just been going out around London in the nineties and taking photos while he was at raves. So he said, I've got this whole archive. No one's really seen before. Um, you know, let's meet up and, and have a chat and he, he liked the idea. He kind of gave me a few pointers on, you know, the concepts and suggestions. Um, also managed to hook me up with a few people like Goldie, you know, arranged interviews, things like that. So, um, yeah, he was still sort of quite in the loop and friends with a few people, you know, from the industry, which helped. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, some of the photos we couldn't use are brilliant. <laughs> 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 if the book could have been bigger, you know, but so. Uh, 
we're trying to keep the cost down you know you kind of want it to be affordable rather than some massive yeah. like 50 quid thing it's i mean it's a beautiful book it is really nice yeah it did come out really well in the end um we met up with i'd approached a couple of publishers and another there was a, like a record label we spoke to is um we met with bde actually because eddie had done some stuff for them mm. and they liked the idea of it but they'd have kind of left us to it and just put it out so i thought i'm not sure i've got the know-how or the time to figure out how to get all this done yeah. um and I'd approached a couple of publishers who were quite keen on it, but for one reason or another, couldn't put it out. And then Colin Stephen, who'd printed, who'd published Knowledge Magazine, um, which was like the main sort of drum and bass magazine for most of the 90s and into the early 2000s, he'd started a publishing company and put a couple of books out. Uh, I reached out to him, had a meeting, and he liked the idea. And obviously him knowing about drum and bass and everything already, we didn't kind of have to sell it too hard to him. Um, he's kind of understood what we were trying to do and... You know, obviously, you could look at all the names I'd interviewed and knew who they all were, which helped. Whereas there was always that danger of going to a publishing house and them just not understanding or not recognizing anything of you know what I was trying to do with this uh, this concept. Um, so yeah, that was quite a good fit with Velocity Press. Really, Colin kind of uh, yeah got the concept straight away, and again, like put me in touch. He made a few suggestions, put me in touch with a couple of people um, to get the final handful of interviews done. So I ended up going from my initial idea of 93 to 96 to going from like 1990 to 98 and covered a whole decade, which sort of made more sense in hindsight. I think that's great, though, if you can get that person with a bit of experience. And as well with Velocity um, Velocity Press, they do quite a lot of books around DJing and DJ culture as well, don't they? So it's probably a really good fit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the time, I think he'd put out maybe three books. Um, and by the time mine came out, it was probably the fifth or sixth that he published, I think. But yeah, he's had a really good run, you know, some quite, some quite niche concepts along some more mainstream, you know, he's done like one on Daft Punk, for example, which is probably a bit more wide range and wide appeal. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he was really good to work with. I mean, when he started, he was just sort of a one-man band, but he was very kind of open to ideas and hands-on and a lot of good suggestions, hooked us up with a good designer who worked on the layout with us. This was what I was mentioning earlier. You kind of, I had to relinquish a bit of control because I had no idea what I was doing. I sort of presented them with the text. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted it to look. And they'd come back and go, is this okay? And I'd be like, yeah, this is, you know. Um, but I was quite keen to keep it about the the vinyl. You know, each chapter's got like a record. Um, that was always the, the original concept. Because a lot of these things can go off on tangents and they start talking a bit too much about maybe the drugs and the raves and um, or they get a bit too much into like social commentary and this sort of thing. I really wanted to keep it strictly on the music um, and just let the people that were there tell their stories. Yeah, I think sometimes um, if books are a bit too journalistic, you can you can run out of steam with them as well if they're written mm. in certain ways. Whereas yeah. if you know you've got that structure, it's cool. what's quite nice with a book like that is it's easy to pick up and put down. Yeah. And also, I've been listening to the there's a Spotify playlist someone's made of all the tune well all the tunes that are on Spotify. Yeah, they're not all on there, but it's just quite nice to have that point of reference as well. Because yeah. there's a good few of the tunes I recognise but I pretty much wouldn't know 95% of the titles of them. Right, okay. So it's, so it's nice to have that and understand the bits. Okay. And the kind of social conditions and things like that that some of these tunes came from and yeah. and, and which elements of the melting pot musically that we've discussed resulted in these certain tunes as well. Yeah. It's really interesting like that. Um, and you've done the record now, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, that um, the concept of that came around just after the book had 
been published. I mean, it would have been nice to have them drop at the same time. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, uh, I think Colin had been talking to Above Board, um, who did the, they did an album, Fabio and Groove Rider, like a 30 Years of Rage album. Um, and they put out like a lot of new stuff, mainly kind of house and techno and electronic mm. based, but they'd done like a few other things. And they thought, you know, if the, the titles from Velocity's catalogue, this would be a good one to do a pairing of really, do a little joint venture. So I got the, uh, the task of trying to collate a track list, which was, it was quite cool, you know, for all this time, like I was saying about sharing music, you go from recording songs on the radio to DJing and it's like a, the, the final level, you know, you get a, a compilation album out. Yeah. But it was a lot harder than I anticipated. And I think a lot harder than the guys that are above board anticipated because licensing these days, I don't know about all genres, but certainly for drum and bass, um, proved quite difficult in some instances, um, whether it be, labels just not wanting to license tunes because maybe they feel it takes away a bit of their immediate revenue from streaming or if they want to repress something or um just asking for too much money <laughs> whereas you know we did, the initial run for the album was um there's two two double vinyl sets and we did 500 of each to start with um and obviously you have to keep that cost effective so if somebody's asking yeah. for the earth you know you can't use that tune so I think my initial idea was like, oh, let's get loads of like unreleased dub plates and tunes no one's ever heard and put them out. But that wasn't happening. So uh, <laughs> it was it was a bit of trial and error. You know, there's I kind of wanted a mix of maybe a few obscure bits that people that buy vinyl might not have, some well known things, and just um, yeah, like the book, try and cover like a lot of different eras and styles. My other thing was it couldn't just be all the tunes in the book because then it's basically a uh, Ministry of Sound Best of Jungle compilation. You know, most mm. of those records in the book have been put out on every every CD going. So, um, yeah, just try and give people something that they might not have been able to get hold of because if you go on Discog, some of those tunes are very expensive. Uh, so, I was, yeah, the, the other thing was like, I'm just going to go through my wants list and try and get as many of these on there as possible, you know? Ah, oh, nice. Right. Which kind of worked out. I got a few bits off the, uh, you know, off the list and saved a bit of money. But um, it, it came out well, man. It's, it's a nice little mix there. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking it out. So I think it's probably a bit of a bit different with you to some of the other guests that we've had because you've got quite a few different touch points around the passion. So what I normally ask people is about any one piece of advice you'd give to say a DJ that's starting out. But maybe with you, it's it's probably more a question of asking if you've got any key bits of advice just around following your passion. Um. Yeah, I guess that in itself is like the bit of advice really is just do what you genuinely like and try not to be too swayed by fashions and trends and what you think might get you further because inevitably there'll be someone that is passionate about that that's all do it better than you. You know, if you're not really into it, it's you won't be able to do it for too long and when it goes out of fashion, then you have to switch to something else. You know, and you're kind of always playing catch up. And I remember, you know, for example, when around my area, a lot of people were playing Garage when that died down, and a lot of them tried to switch to playing hip-hop and R&B. And to play hip-hop and R&B and stuff, you kind of have to have that knowledge of how things work. You can't just... It's not like House, for example, where you can maybe pick up two tunes at the same BPM and they'll work. With hip-hop, you sort of have to know the the areas, the relationship between the artists, and, you know, there's a lot of different subgenres. You wouldn't necessarily turn up and play, like, a Black Alicious tune and then throw on, like, DMX. You know, even though they're both hip hop. Um, so I think taking that time and maybe just like focusing on what you genuinely enjoy and building that knowledge of it, um, it'll stand you in good stead for, for a longer period of time. The other thing I'd probably say is 
you can be a lot more adventurous now with the technology. Yeah. And for all the features and like bells and whistles that you get with these gadgets, it seems like you do still get a lot of people just playing the big tunes and not really doing much with them. So if you, you know, if you put that extra effort in, it makes you stand out a bit more, I think. You know, I've always liked messing around with acapellas and things. So I haven't got into Soraya stems yet. I've only just set all my stuff up this week um, after six months of, you know, being boxed up. But yeah, I've I've got this sometimes unpopular opinion that I think Serato stems is going to do more bad than good. Quite possibly. Yeah. So for, for anyone who's listening who, who doesn't really know what this is, effectively Serato is the um, kind of an industry standard um, digital DJing solution where you DJ with your MP3s and you have files and things. And what it now does is it can strip out acapellas, it can strip out the drums, it can strip out bass lines and it can strip out everything else. So you can kind of do loads and loads of live remixing. There's a lot of other tools that it has that make things easier. But my concern is if people kind of do these things by numbers without trusting their ears, we're probably going to get a lot more train wrecks than really nice blends. Yes. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, and I guess, you know, if I went back to some old mixtapes, there's probably some things on there that don't sound great. But I think you have to allow a certain amount of, um, you know, learning curves and things like that. I think maybe yeah. the difference back then was you practiced in private and when you kind of felt you were at a certain level, then you'd play out, whereas it seems to have got to a point where people just learn in public now. Um, yeah. You know, so it's... Again, you've got to have a lot of confidence to do that. I think there was a, you know, some people wouldn't want to do it until they're absolutely sure they could do it properly. Whereas some people just want to be seen to be doing it. And the actual end product of it isn't as important as them being able to go up there and be like, hi, I'm a DJ. So it's, you know, it attracts different people now. You know, you get a lot of DJs looking like models, which you never used to get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation in itself. Yeah. Um, where can people find you online, Paul? Mainly Twitter. I am at Paul DJ Step One. I'm on Instagram. I don't like Instagram. I do use it occasionally. Yeah, I'm. You know, obviously, if you Google Paul Tazuli, it's not a lot of them, so I'm quite easy to find generally. If you Google Who Say Reload, the book comes up my name. Get me through Velocity Press website. Um, anything like that. Brilliant. And is the record through the website as well, or is that somewhere else? Yeah, you can order through Velocity. I think most places now have got it, like Juno and um, Chemical and them sort of places. So it's, um, I think with Volume 1, they might be going for a repress on that because that kind of went quite quickly. And Volume 2 came out end of March. Um, so they are two double packs, eight tunes on each one. So it's two tunes a side. So it's nice, loud pressing, very good quality, a few rare bits on there, some anthems. And Total package looks nice. We've got these photography on the front, back, and on the insert. Um, so yeah, and there's uh, digital as well on the um, on Bandcamp. Cool. Well, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been interesting. Excellent, excellent. Right. Well, I'll speak to you soon. Yes, we'll do. Nice one. Take care, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at oncedjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at oncedjpodcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.